Well, this is a communion Sunday. Our practice here has been, at least my practice has been, over the years that uh, we go to a passage that speaks on Christ and his crucifixion when we have the communion table set up before us. And for quite some time, my passages were in Isaiah 53, and it took quite a few years to get through it when you could only do it about four times a year, um, which is about how often we have the table set up. So that that went over quite a few years that we covered that. We started Psalm 22, and that's where we are today in Psalm 22. And this is our fourth time at it, which is what we've done this year, in the last year anyway. And uh, we will continue to work through Psalm 22, a beautiful psalm about the sacrifice of our Lord and the depth of that sacrifice. Uh, it's stunning. It is absolutely stunning stunning to read these words and to see the picture of Christ. It's so obvious in the passage, especially the idea of having your feet pierced and your your hands pierced and all the other verses here, dividing garments and things like that. It's almost like reading one of the gospel accounts as you work your way through Psalm 22. So today we're going to take a little portion of it. Uh, follow along. I'm just going to read the first three verses today. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my help are the words of my groaning. My God, I cry out by day and you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. I'm going to stop right there. That will be my focus in our thoughts here this morning. Yet you are holy. Heavenly Father, help us with this. It's a topic too big for us. And yet, as we seek to understand more of what was expressed in these words, draw us to you, Lord. We come before you with a sense of of fear for how great you are, and yet a sense of love because you've invited us as we are your children and you are our Father. What a, a blessing it is to know you and to be known by you. And today we submit ourselves to you as your Holy Spirit works within us to teach us, help us with these words. They're far too big for our minds, but you can take them and apply them and help us to see, again, how great you are. And I thank you, Lord, for them. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a song we've sung before here many times, I'm sure. Uh, It says, Why should he love me so? Why should he love me so? Why did my Savior to Calvary go? Why should he love me so? You ever ask that question? Why would he love me? These words that are before us, yet you are holy, are challenging. They're challenging to study, and when you start to get a feel for what it's saying, it scares you. Yet you are holy. The holiness of our God. I can only imagine what it was like to be a high priest. Only imagine what it was like for them to have the responsibility. Remember, once a year, they were allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, just once a year, on the Day of Atonement, and make atonement for the people. I don't know what it was like to wake up in the morning as a high priest, 
and realized that that was my task for the day. Remember, this same high priest who experienced it first was Aaron. And there was a day when he watched fire come forth from there and consume two of his sons. I think that'd take it very seriously, wouldn't you? They say that, uh, and I heard this just recently watching a biography on Charles Spurgeon, that every Sunday morning he grew up with an up, uh, woke up with an upset stomach because he realized what the day was. To have the privilege to open up God's holy word and to share it with people, that's an incredible task. And, and as I think back on that priest, do you know what a high priest did on that day? Can I just give you a summary of it? It might help a little bit to show you this. But it's recorded in Leviticus chapter 16, what a high priest did on the Day of Atonement. And it wasn't a real simple process. It says when the, when the Lord spoke to Aaron about these things, it was right after his two sons had been extinguished by fire. Just like that. And uh, so he says, okay, Aaron, this is my rule. You're coming into the Holy of Holies, you're going to do it my way. And he says, I don't want you inside that veil ever, but one day a year. That's it. Don't you go inside that veil at any other time, because I will kill you if you did. But when you come into that veil on the day I call you to, and it's later expressed in this Leviticus chapter 16, the day that he was to do it, they called it the Day of Atonement, they tell you what day and month it will be. He says, this is how you're going to enter. You're going to come into this holy place with a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Now that's just part of it. I want you to put on your holy tunic, he says, and dress yourself accordingly as I gave you garments to wear as a high priest with the sash on it with the turban on your head you're to take a bath first and then put it on and once you have done that you're to go out in front of the congregation of the sons of israel you're to take two male goats for a sin offering one ram for a bull offering or a burnt offering and a bull on top of that you're to offer the bull first for yourself because you're a sinful man. And you're to offer that sacrifice there, and then you're to take the two goats, and you're going to present them before the Lord. You're going to cast some lots. One of those goats is a sacrifice. The other goat is a scapegoat. And the scapegoat you're going to have for another purpose. You're going to take the goat that's designated for the sacrifice, and you're going to sacrifice him too. This is all... This isn't done instantly, in case you're wondering. Killing a bull is not an easy thing. I mean, killing the ram and all the others that they had to do too. But in both cases, in all cases, Aaron, when he offers or slaughters these animals for sacrifice, all he's doing is collecting the blood. So first, the bull is done. And once he has the blood of the bull in a basin, he is to take a fire pan, put it coals from the fire. He's to take that fire pan, take two uh, handfuls of finely ground flour that has incense in it as well. Frankincense is usually the thing. And then he can come in with this in his hands inside the veil. And this is just for himself. 
And here he is to stand before the veil. He's to sprinkle the blood on the east side of the mercy seat. He's to sprinkle some on the, the front of the mercy seat. And then he's to go back out again, sacrifice the goat. And this time he collects the blood in a basin as well. And he comes back in there and he sprinkles it again on the mercy seat, right there on the sides of the mercy seat. And he makes atonement for the people. And then he goes out as well. When he comes back out of that area, he's supposed to sprinkle it on the altar as well. On the horns of the altar and down by the base of the altar. And he's to pour that blood out there. And he's to do it seven times and cleanse it for the impurities of the people of Israel. And when he's done all that, then he's to take the live goat. Remember, we're still standing there. And he brings in the live goat. And he lays his hands on it. And I want to read you this verse. You ready? It says in verse 21 of Leviticus 16, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people. That's not a ten-minute job. That's concerning the sons of Israel for a whole year. He's confessing their sins. And all, it says, their transgressions in regards to their sins. And shall lay them on the head of the goat. And then they send it away by a man who's been designated for that purpose. And he is to take that goat out into a solitary place. Let the goat go. And then Aaron goes back into the tent of meeting. He has to change his clothes. Take a bath. Come back out again. And finish the offerings. Right? That was a pretty big ordeal as that in the start. And then he comes out and he makes atonement for himself and the people with burnt offerings and stuff. And then he offers up the smoke of the fat of a sin offering on the altar. And then the one who did the scapegoat took it out there. He's got to go and take a bath too and change his clothes before he can come back. So all this is going on. Again, it's not a five-minute deal, is it? And then once the offerings are all made... Then they take what's left of the animals and they take it outside the camp and burn it out there. It's not allowed to be eaten. It's not allowed to be shared like some of the offerings were. But this is what they were to do over and over and over, year after year, on the seventh month, on the tenth day, this was his job. That's a big deal. And you approach it with that great concern. You're going into the Holy of Holies And that's the place where the cloud of God's glory resided. You want it? You want that job? Woo! That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. But the whole point was, as God told him, don't you dare approach me without blood in your hand. Don't you dare come in without the blood. So many times when we approach this communion table... And remember what it is reminding us of, the sacrifice of Christ. There's a comparison made between what the high priest did on behalf of the people and the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Folks, you're not going to heaven without the blood of Christ. All right? It's just that simple. If Christ hasn't died for you, you don't have a chance. You don't have a hope. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of your sins. You are set right with God. There's no longer no condemnation. I love those verses. They all stand up and shout, don't they? 
that we, through Christ, have access to the Father, and we have the hope of eternal life. That's beautiful to remember. And this is a picture of what we rejoice in on top of the fact that we're humbled by this because what brought this about was our sin. It's such an interesting thing when you study the holiness of God. You have both sides of these coming at you. You have God's great holiness and you've got the sinfulness of mankind and the sacrifice of Christ in the middle and the fact that we have hope. Whereas if it wasn't for Christ, we'd have none at all. So here we are in Psalm 22, looking at this simple little verse, where it says, Yet you are holy. We stop there and look at it again. So far in our study, just to bring you up to speed, some of you haven't been with us, and they're only just paragraphs to remind us of what we've seen in this psalm already. The very first phrase, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? It's an alarming statement to hear and probably was from the cross as well. The essence of that cry is that of abandonment. That's the essence of the word. Why have you abandoned me is the concept behind it. We assume that this was a very tough ordeal, obviously, to go on a cross. Some people think that uh, Jesus didn't know why. And that's why he raised the question. Father, why have you forsaken me? Could it be the idea that the father couldn't face sin? And the sin was put upon his son? That's quite possible. (laughs) That's quite possible. Could it be that sometime, somewhere, uh, this whole act that uh, Jesus was Abandoned by the Father was kind of a a sign as to what God thought of mankind? Or could it be this? And maybe in addition. This is the first time that I note, and probably the most important time, that Jesus did something on his own. Because as you walk through his life, you can see clearly, as he said it, He is totally dependent upon his Father. He prayed to his Father. He obeyed his Father. He fulfilled his Father's word and his will. He went to the cross because his Father told him to. And when he went there, he went alone to accomplish something that the Father couldn't do for you and the Holy Spirit did not do for you. Only Jesus Christ is the one who could finish that. And he's the one who died on the cross. The cup the Father did not take, Jesus did. Even though together they created the world, even though together they sit on a throne, together they sustain and supply and spin it all together so that it works, but it was Jesus who died alone on that cross. It was Jesus who took our sins, and God left him to do it alone. And that must have been a remarkable moment for all through eternity past, he did everything with his Father. And suddenly, he did it himself. I I don't know, I try to think deeper than that, and it's too much for my brain. It's just incredible. We looked at that phrase. We looked at our second phrase. uh, As to 
Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Here he is over here. Here's my groaning. Way over there is his deliverance. Way far over there. And the gap is so significant, so far, that the words are used as if I need to be rescued, but my help is so far away, it's not going to get here on time. It's not going to make it on time. The concern is that it's going to be too late by the time help arrives. And he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And do you know that's never answered in the text? It's silent. The request goes without an answer. We think of silence as nothing. We think of silence as nothing at all, but actually it is something. We talked about this as the nature of even music itself. There's a reason for a rest in among all the notes. Because what appears to be a nothing space on that staff actually is giving definition to everything else around it. That's why they put the stops in the music. So that you can reflect on the different parts and pieces and see the beauty of them when they're all put together. See, they're borders if you will, for the sound that goes around them. And so when we think of heaven being silent and not answering, when Christ yells out, why have you forsaken me? That's actually something that's quite beautiful when you see it in its context. That's necessary. Because in our humanity, in our humanity, we want answers, don't we? We say, Lord, where's the answer? In our hope, we wait. In our walk, we trust. In our hearts, we cry. And some of you do that day and night, just like the words are here in this phrase. We cry, and it appears as if God doesn't even hear us. He's not even listening. But He does. He does hear. He heard those words when Jesus shouted them out. But His silence, folks, is part of the great masterpiece of it all. If you can see this and understand what he's doing here. I don't know if it's hard for God to not jump on every single request we make because he cares for us. And he says, I'm going to solve that right now. I'm going to solve that right now. And he jumps and answers immediately. But I do think that that would be a detriment to our faith. Because if we got answers immediately, what kind of people would we be? What's the word we use? Spoiled. Did I say that right? We would be spoiled people, wouldn't we? If everything was answered just the way we wanted it, at the right moment, we said so. Oh, I know, we won't confess to that. But that's true. How good it is that the Father does not answer our demands on the spot. How good it is that in His greatness and His wisdom and His love and all of those in operation, He stops and doesn't answer everything we ask. Because if He did that, what would He have done with the cup when Jesus said, Father, take this from me? He didn't. When it comes to a cross, Why didn't God send that legion of angels to rescue His Son at that moment? 
When it came to putting nails in the hands of his son and nails through his feet and then applying the sins of the world and letting his son suffer and die. Do you not realize his silence in these things brought you salvation? I think that's beautiful. I think it gives definition to silence. And that we talked about a little bit too. Because so often we think we're so far from the answer when you're really not. You're not. Last time we looked at this, back in October, we actually jumped from verse 4 all the way down to verse 15. We thought we were just about through the chapter. And in verse 15, after several displays of people who trusted God over the years, it says in verse 15, And you lay me in the dust of death. You lay me in the dust of death. And that's not just a simple little picture of sitting in dry, powdery ashes and, you know, it's cool to the touch and all that. Actually, the picture is that like a pot laid in the ashes, the ashes are hot. They put it in there to cook. And all you have to do is fan on the ashes and the flames appear. And this picture is so important because so many times when we make this mild expression about the sufferings of Christ. He was laid in the dust of death. We picture that it was somewhat easier than the picture itself, that these were hot coals. And even in Christ's statement, the the intensity of the suffering only increased all the way through. He didn't die in a whimper. Matter of fact, his last words were shouts, if you recall. He shouted with a loud voice saying, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's not a whimper. He didn't die that way. But the anguish of the suffering persisted. The pain became more acute. The the breathing was more labored. The thirst was more burning. He was set like a pot in the ashes. And this is a picture we saw. But what I noticed most of all was the fact that God intentionally did that to his son. God intentionally put his son in that place. To lay something on the fire is done on purpose. And you also have to locate the place and do it at that place. God located the place and God ordained the act and it was established from long ago that Jesus Christ would die. From the foundation of the world, God had already planned that. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's part of His plan too, and it's remarkable to me. But the Father's plan all along was to have His Son slain for us. He deliberately led Him to Jerusalem. He orchestrated that He would be arrested. He purposed that He would be condemned. He ordained that He would die on a cross. He intentionally laid Him in the ashes. (laughs) And you may think that a hard thing to grasp, that a father would do such a thing. And then you go to grapple with Isaiah 53.10. The Lord was pleased to crush him. That's a stunning statement. But if the father hadn't given up his son to death, he couldn't have saved you or me. Don't ever think that the father doesn't love you. 
How many times when you're going through something tough, you say, I don't know if he really loves me that much. Don't ever think his love operates like the Dow Jones. All right? Good today, bad tomorrow. Or bad the next day and the next day. Then good, maybe. That's not God's love. If ever you want to know, does the Father love me? Realize that he carefully, intentionally set up a display that will last forever of his love for you. And that is, he put his son on a cross to die there for you and me. And every time you look at the cross, the word love is right there in the picture. That's what he did for you. There's power in those words. He laid me in the dust of death. It's an intense act. It's the climax of suffering. It's a pinnacle of passion. And the Bible says that God slew his son. Ignoring the words, why have you forsaken me? Leaving silence to say everything that the Father was doing there. But I want to ask you this today. I want to ask you this, as we're walking through this passage, you get to the place, yet you are holy. And I had to stop and and reflect on all these things, and I said, where was the son's desire in all this? I talked so much about the father's plan, the father's will, the father leading him this way, the father having him slain, the father having him take the sins of the world. But what about the son? What about the son? We read that he prayed, Father, take this cup from me. Was he afraid to die? Was he afraid to go to the cross? I want to examine the words, yet you are holy for a minute. Do you think Jesus could understand the full implications of those words? Who is he, by the way? He's God. He's God. Try to grasp this for a minute. And I know, any time we try to grasp the expression, you are holy, it's like trying to see the whole universe in a single glance. (laughs) It's too big. It's way too big. But holiness is something Jesus knew very well. He knew it. He is God. Holy is His name. Sinless in every moment. Even in his life in the flesh, sinless in every moment. Imagine that. That boggles us too. He comes to this earth. He's the only one, the only one who could represent the Heavenly Father and all his holiness to this sinful world. He's the only one who could fulfill that that expression of the Father. Here's the verse in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus Christ. He has explained Him. find that to be a fascinating word. Explained Him. What's that mean? That's exegeted. That's a good old Greek word we pull out. Exegeted means to show the way, to unfold, to declare, to tell. We use that for how do you do a good Bible study to how do you preach. You exegete the word. You get just, this is it. Unfold it and present it. Unfold it and present it. Jesus Christ did that. 
when it came to understanding the Father. We couldn't have understood the Father, but He came to explain the Father, to unfold the Father, to show us who the Father was and what the Father was like. Matter of fact, He was the best sermon ever preached. That's Jesus Christ. And so He knew holiness inside and out. And He could represent it perfectly. No flaws there. Easy if you want to call that easy. But on the other side of it, he went to a cross, didn't he? And there on that cross, he's the only one ever to take upon himself the sins of the whole world. The only one who ever could do that. Folks, you don't want to try that. That would crush you to pieces. There's no hope. Jesus Christ is the only one who can truly represent man before a holy God. The only one capable of that. Sin is a terrible word. If you're ever going to study holiness and understand it, you have to understand sin. Because when you put them side by side, you see the difference. I'll give you a paragraph here. I've been reading a book by J.C. Ryle. And I'm just out of chapter 1, and it's done me enough. I said, boy, chapter 2 is going to be a doozy. Chapter 1 just was on sin. These are some of the words he wrote. Sin is the fault and corruption of the, hu- of the nature of every man that is naturally engendered, engendered to the offspring of Adam, whereby man is very far gone from original righteousness, and is of his own nature inclined to evil, so that the flesh lusts always against the spirit. And therefore, in every person born into the world, it deserves God's wrath and damnation. A sin consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. Did you hear that? Woo! I'll read it one more time. A sin consists in doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. The slightest outward or inward departure from absolute mathematical parallelism with God's revealed will and character is a sin. And makes us guilty in God's sight. Those are alarming words. Sin, folks, is is a disease, if we can use that word. It's a disease that infiltrates our entire being. It's gripped us with its vice grip hands. It, It has bore its way into our muscle. It has captured our organs. It's deadened our hearts. It renders our emotions callous. It permeates our mind. It sets roots in our brain. It conquers our conscience. It bends our will to its own. It forces our steps down a road to destruction. It dims our vision. It changes our appetites. And without Christ, the Scripture makes it clear, we are spiritually dead men. Without Christ. Now what does it say? 2 Corinthians 5.21, listen carefully. God made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Wow! 
holy Christ, sinful man. It goes on to say, and I, I really can't fathom it, folks. He took on himself the sins of the whole world. I can add my own pile, which is significant. And if all of us brought in our piles and put them together, it'd be a terrible mess. A little mountain south of Enid, you know, where they dump all our trash. It would look nothing compared to what we could build. The sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. Try to capture that in your thinking. There are so many passages that vividly describe the death of Christ for us. Most of them are physical. Most of the descriptions are physical. His body was broken. His blood was poured forth. He was scourged. He was beaten. He was struck with the fist. A crown of thorns was put on his head. He had no sleep. He had no drink but bitter wine. He had been marred beyond recognition. He had nails in his hands and feet. He was suffocated on a cross. He had heart failure from all that. His bones were out of joint. He had no strength. And his tongue dried up in his mouth. Physically, that's awesome to understand it. Emotionally, what Jesus went through for us. Betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, abandoned by the disciples, mocked at a trial, questioned as to his person and relationship with God, treated unjustly, lied about, bullied by soldiers, blasphemed, reviled by religious leaders, traded for a thief, crucified with thieves, publicly shamed on a cross, mocked on a cross by thieves, and those who stood below. Just a small sample. And yet, how do you understand the spiritual suffering that went with that? That's amazing. I, I'm aware of my own sins and the shame that goes with it. We use words like disappointment or defeat or fear of being discovered or the pains of the penalty or the reflection on one's pride and the hopelessness of bad habits and the destruction of all that is good. If we talk about shame and we talk about all these words that come to the forefront, sin is a chain and it binds and it ties tight and its only avenue is death and its nail is like that in a coffin. The power of sin is part of this story. For that's what Jesus Christ took upon him. And somebody had once said that the power of sin, the power of sin is simply in the fact that even though it has been crucified, it still has power over us. And I said, wow. When you approach a cross and you view the sufferings of Christ, how can we not be mindful of the fact that it was because of us he did that. Doesn't that just humble you down to the very lowest spot? It's because of us he did that. Because of us. And you know what? He didn't mask it. He didn't say, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about it. He wants you to worry about it. <laughs> he wants you to think of the fact that this is why he came. He didn't leave it unsaid. 
as he's crying out at a cross, one of his phrases, you're holy! He looks to the Father, and he sees the sin that he bore in reference to his holiness of his Father. And boy, was that a heavy, crushing statement for the Savior to say. It says in 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. <laughs> Amazing. We could do nothing about that sin. We could do nothing about our standing before a holy God. Nothing to erase that. We couldn't pay for one sin, let alone the compilation of all the sins. We couldn't do it. Jesus knew the holiness of God, and he knew the sinfulness of man. And he is, folks, the only go-between. He is the only mediator between man and God. The only Savior. The only remedy for sin. There's a lot of people following a lot of things. But only Christ will take you to heaven. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. Because He, as Drew and I were talking this morning, is the only one who ever died for you. The only one. It's interesting. He was, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And then the question arises in Isaiah 53. If, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, takes you back to a high priest one morning, doesn't it? If he would give himself as a guilt offering. There's all kinds of offerings out there, but this is a unique one. Do you know what a guilt offering covered? Not just what you've done wrong, but what you didn't know you've done wrong. It also covers unintentional sins, unaware sins, things that you have done that you didn't know that you owed restitution for. This sin was specifically designed that someday Jesus would fulfill a sin offering called a guilt offering. If Jesus would render himself as a guilt offering. That's where the blood is poured on the altar. That's where it's represented by blood smeared there. That we might come to know divine forgiveness. And guess what? That's the one where you have to lay your hands on the head too. And confess your sins. Interesting pictures. So I want to ask you this. Did Jesus die on purpose? Oh, yes, he did. He knew exactly what was going on. Was he willing to go to a cross? Absolutely so. Why should he love me so? Why should he love me so? Why to, why should my Savior to Calvary go? Why should he love me go? And he'll answer you the same way every time you ask that question. He says, greater love is no one than this. That a man lays down his life. For who? For his friend. For his friend. Folks, we're approaching something that has the flavor of holiness and the beauty of forgiveness all in the same, same portion. Isn't it glorious? 
as we partake together at this wonderful reminder of the death of Christ. Some of you folks haven't been here with us when we have had a communion service before, but I'll tell you how this works. 